Thank you for having me back since last year to come and share and serve you with the word. I'm really thankful to be here. I only wish that I would have been able to hear more of uh, Pastor Abner's sermon and be blessed by that. I know that you were. You can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15, looking at verses 1 through 11. If you didn't catch my name, my name is Jim Upchurch, and I confess to you that I am a underachiever. Do you ever get to a point in your life and you feel like, I really should have accomplished a lot more by now? That's, that's how I feel sometimes. Now I do, I have managed to keep a job for the last 15, 20 years, a steady job, not the same job, but it's been interrupted work, and I have been serving churches the last 15 years. As I look back over that, you wouldn't see much as far as outward visible success in terms of how the world sees success. I, I own uh, one vehicle free and clear, no loans on it. It's my truck, which I just locked the keys in a little while ago. It's not much, it's a white, plain truck. It gets the job done. It can get from zero to 60 in about 10 or 12 seconds, maybe. <laughs> it takes it a little while. I do have a Master of Arts degree, but that's partially because it got too long doing the MDiv, and I got tired and we struggled through that with the finances and making it work, and finally got it done. I should have accomplished more by now. I have a library at home. Half the books I haven't read at all. I haven't even cracked them open. And a quarter of those I've cracked open and read the first chapter or two, and then I decide that's too hard right now. I'm going to put that away. I feel like I should have accomplished so much more in my life by now. How many of you have ever felt that way? Absolutely. As we come to our passage, we will also be confronted with our own limitations spiritually. We will be confronted with the fact that as we look back on our lives, we should have grown much more spiritually. We long for that. We will we'll see in this passage that Jesus' disciples inevitably bear fruit. That they, they will bear fruit for the glory of God. And so we might become frustrated in considering this. We might become weighed down yet again. We might consider ourselves failures because we know we should have done so much more by now. And yet, I think if we look at this passage carefully, we will see that it turns our eyes away from ourselves and our own performance and our own ability to produce fruit. And it points to one who has produced fruit perfectly and faithfully for his people, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true vine from whom we get our life and our being and through whom we bear fruit. Let's look at our passage together. John 15, 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. 
Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Father, we do ask that you would direct our eyes towards Christ, our Savior, and that you would produce in us joy from the reading and preaching of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the context of this passage is the farewell discourse toward the end of the Gospel of John. And this is, we could consider, a part two of the farewell discourse as Jesus is teaching his disciples certain things that they will want to know before he leaves them. He, he wants to encourage them. He wants to comfort them, as we just heard from Pastor Abner's message and text. He wants to prepare them for living life in his absence, they've been with him these years, and now he is going to be leaving them. And in this passage, he particularly wants to inform them and encourage them about bearing fruit. I've already said that I think the theme is that Jesus' disciples inevitably will bear fruit. And they will do so for the glory of God. And so by speaking of these things, by teaching them of these things, he is helping them to understand how they will live without him in the midst of this world. And we see it carried on through the book of Acts just as he, he speaks. For our time this evening, I want us to consider then this, this bearing fruit, this idea of bearing fruit, this image of bearing fruit for the glory of God. And I want to go ahead and give you up front the four points that I'll use. We'll look at its necessity in verses 1 through 2 and verse 6. We'll look at its means. How do we get this fruit? How do we bear fruit in verses 3 to 7? Its result in verse 8 and its meaning in verses 9 through 11. What does it mean, in other words, to bear fruit for the glory of God? First, let's consider the necessity of bearing fruit for the glory of God. What does he say in verses 1 and 2? Branches that do bear fruit, the Father prunes them so that they may bear more fruit. And yet, we see in verse 2 and verse 6 that every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He removes it. For one, he prunes it back gently as a caretaker would tend his garden. And for the other, he lops 
the branch off, removes it, and throws it away. The dead, lifeless branch that has not been receiving nutrients from the root. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Why is he telling this to his disciples? This sounds frightening. To be compared to a branch which is taken off of the root and thrown into the fire. Well, I heard that Chris mentioned the Duke and Carolina rivalry, and of course, we're in the midst of March Madness, and so I had it in my mind to mention it as well. I'm a big Carolina fan, so my pain was eased a little bit a, few, a couple of days afterwards when Duke lost. Now we can all be friends again because nobody's in, in the tournament anymore. And yet, I was talking to a couple of my friends about the, the games that were going on, several of them claiming to be fans of other teams. But as I did so, I found out they didn't even watch the game. And one of them said, well, I'm glad I didn't watch it since Duke lost. And I'm thinking, what do you mean you you didn't watch the game? You're supposed to be a a Duke fan. You watched the games. I watched the Duke game because I'm a Carolina fan. You really should have watched it. And yet it, it came to my mind that many people aren't really that interested in basketball or actually being fans they are what we might call fans in name only finos right we could call them you've heard of rhinos republicans in name only we could also go with dinos disciples in name only and all throughout the gospel of john this is pointed out actually a couple of times early in john people are called disciples of jesus and then they turn back from following him They weren't really disciples, but they outwardly appeared to be his disciples. Jesus spoke some difficult things, and and it said they no longer followed after him because of this. They are the the seed that is planted in the, the shallow soil, or in the soil that is surrounded by weeds. And it grows up, and it springs up, and it looks like faith. It looks like discipleship. And then the worries of the world, the cares of the world, the trials that people face, it chokes it out so that it dies. They were, they were disciples in name only. They were not actually disciples. And here we see that they will be clipped off of Jesus divine and thrown into the fire. And this serves as a great warning to us, brothers and sisters, for every one of us who claims the name of Christ, who claims to follow him. Be careful, the scripture says, lest there be an unbelieving heart in any of you. Be careful. Examine, in a sense, your your faith, your connectedness to Jesus. Examine, in some senses, your fruit. Because it is... A necessity if you're not to be thrown into the fire. It is a necessity, but then we must be thinking, well, how do we get this fruit? I want this fruit. If it is required to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to be a part of him, to, to bear fruit and to continue growing and have life in him, how do we get this? We see the means of bearing fruit in verses 3 through 7. I could read those again. I'll just point out what I think are the means that are, that are pointed out in this. 
It is Christ, his word, and prayer. It sounds a lot like what I would call the ordinary means of God's grace to us. In other words, the ordinary way God works in his people to grow and to flourish and to bear fruit in him. Abide in me, Jesus says. He also says, already you, you disciples he's speaking to, you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you wish and it will be done for you. He appears to be speaking of particularly the words that he has spoken to them about who he is, about his own identity as one sent from the Father in fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies, all the Old Testament scriptures concerning the Messiah, this one who will come and rescue his people from their sins. And then all through John, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. Before Abraham was, I am. He is revealing himself to be not only the savior of mankind, but God come down in the flesh. And his disciples have believed him. They have clung to him in faith. They have embraced him. They have embraced his words. Where else shall we go? Lord, you have the words of eternal life. We know that you are the Holy One of God. They have embraced by faith the teachings of Jesus, particularly related to his own identity as the Son of God and the Messiah of the world. My word has made you clean already. It is already pruning you. It's already already growing you. It's already producing more fruit in you. As you partake of my word, as you receive them by faith, as my words dwell in you, I am growing you. I am forming you. I am shaving, shaving off parts of you that are displeasing, that will distract from bearing fruit, and I am bearing fruit in you. Abiding in Christ and in his word. And the illustration is given here for us. I am the vine and you are the branches. Just as a branch receives all of its nutrients from Christ, from from the root, so we receive everything that we need, life and growth. Everything that we need is found in Christ. John Calvin says that verse 5 is the key to this entire image and to this passage of Scripture. Particularly the last part. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing without Christ. Just as a branch which is broken off from the vine can do nothing, can produce nothing, cannot even go on living. We should consider then, as ones who claim the name of Christ, as ones who long to be connected to him, as ones who long to bear fruit, in whom or in what am I abiding day in and day out? Am I abiding in fruitless political discussions day after day after day because I think that's where I'll get my joy and my life and growth? And Am I abiding in sins of the flesh, of pornography, or greed or anger in whom or in what are you dwelling are you abiding 
maybe heard, heard it said before, you are what you worship. You become what you worship. You, you're becoming those things in a sense. You're becoming those idols that you worship. And let me encourage you here, along with the idea of the ordinary means of grace, that is the, particularly the preaching of the word of God and the gathering of the saints together to receive the Lord's Supper together. Devote yourselves to these things. What did they do in the book of Acts? What did the apostles do? They devoted themselves to gathering together, to breaking bread together, to the word and to the prayers, to the apostles' teachings. This is how they responded to Jesus' farewell address by committing themselves to being together regularly for the worship of God, for the reading and the preaching of God's holy word. It wasn't long ago, just a couple of weeks ago, I received a text from one of my church members, uh, an article, an opinion piece, which said, the church as we know it is over. This particular piece, it's not reflective of Fox News, but it was from Fox News. And I said, well, Fox News is over. It was arguing, well, we can meet together once a month. And then all the other times we can just visit online. We can get the sermons on download afterwards. And we'll be just as, we'll be just as benefited by it. We'll grow just as much. We don't need to gather every single week. But that is far from the picture that the scripture paints for us. What does the author of Hebrews tell us? To not forsake this gathering, but to commit to it all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the context in which God is growing us to bear fruit. We are in the word with the people of God as we lift up our prayers to God. And in this way, God will be growing fruit in us, bearing much fruit in us, Consider next, though, the result of bearing fruit. And we could say bearing much fruit, because in verse 8, it says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. It's a simple point. What is the result of bearing much fruit? It is first that you are proved to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, Secondarily, and more importantly, it redounds to the glory of God Almighty. One of the things I love about coaching baseball is not just getting at the draft all the best players who can hit the home runs, who can catch the fly balls and make the throws. I also enjoy getting players that are kind of average or below average in their skill level. Because I get to see them grow and, and get better and learn new skills. Just last season, we had one of the boys I was coaching. It was coming down to the final out in the final game. Two men on base, and who is it that comes up to bat? Little Johnny comes up to bat, who's maybe had one hit all season long. And everybody's nervous for him, and yet... He gets up to bat, he takes a swing, and he gets a base hit, which brings in a run, and he gets to first base, and he's like, I did it! I can't believe I did it! Now, in my case, it just happened to be lucky. I don't think it was anything necessarily I did to make him grow. But often you see in college games or other basketball or football games, it, it often, the blame can go back to the coach, or the praise can go back 
to the coach. The, the value of the players, the, the talents that the players demonstrate on the field or on the court often point back to something, something the coach has done, and he receives some glory from that. And yet we see in this, how much more so does God receive the glory when his people begin bearing fruit because they are connected to the vine Jesus Christ. He gets glory because he's the one doing it. He's the one doing it in you, in his people, and it redounds back to his glory and honor. And for true disciples, this is a real incentive to bear fruit for the glory of God. It is not so for a disciple in name only. They'll say, glory of God, that, what do I get out of bearing fruit? I just, God gets glory, what do I get? I want to see what I get from bearing fruit. But the disciple of Christ, this is why we exist. Is it not for the glory of God? You were made, brothers and sisters, to point to your creator as the all-sufficient, all-powerful, Wonderful God. This is worth it for us to see God glorified. And that's the result of bearing much fruit. But now we come in verses 9 through 11 to what I've called the meaning of bearing fruit. And I don't know that I've gotten it right, but I, I think I'm onto it. There's been a lot of discussion about what does Jesus mean when he's talking about bearing fruit? Is it making more disciples? Is it obedience? Is it the fruit of the Spirit? What is bearing fruit for the glory of God? You see three main ideas, three main words in verses 9 through 11. They are love, commandments, and joy. Love, commandments, and joy. First, you, you cannot miss, and you, you would do well to go home and meditate on this tonight and tomorrow and the rest of this week, this promise that we have in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Justin, why don't you preach a sermon on just that sentence? The Father and Son have been in an eternal love relationship together as far back as your mind can go it goes back an eternity further and the father has perfectly loved the son and the son has perfectly loved the father as the father has loved Jesus so Jesus loves you who are in Christ that is mind-boggling that's the promise that we have, but he goes on, abide in my love, enjoy that love, stay in that love, remain in it. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I want to argue that, at least in some, went, some sense, it is the keeping of God's commandments which causes us to remain in his love, to be vitally connected to him. And then Jesus' joy is in us and is 
full. It might have been difficult to understand. Let me illustrate just this idea, a simple idea that obedience, I'll say more in a second, but obedience demonstrates love. We could say that actions demonstrate love for one another. The people that you know in your family, what is it that demonstrates love for one another? Is it simply saying the words, I love you? Is it simply saying the right things? Or is it actually have to do also with demonstrating your love for one another through practical words and deeds of love? Now, when I was, I won't pick on my son, I'll pick on myself. When I was a kid, I would often not obey, but then sometimes I would obey, but it would be a grudging sort of obedience. I would be told to take out the trash, and I would grumble about it. I don't want to take out the trash, and I pick it up, and I take it outside, and I put it in the trash can. Now, in that sense, could we say obedience demonstrates love? Now, let's change it up a little bit. Why don't we say Joyful obedience demonstrates love. A willful, joyful obedience demonstrates genuine love for one another, for the Father. And Jesus says that he has done this. Jesus says he has done this faithfully. He has faithfully obeyed the Father. Joyfully, he has obeyed the Father in everything that he has done. Now, throughout the Old Testament, Israel is pictured as a vineyard. Several places throughout the Old Testament. One of those is Isaiah chapter 5, where the, uh, the picture is given where God has, has tended this garden. He's tilled this garden. He's given everything it needs to be fruitful and to grow and to flourish, and yet it does not happen. Israel fails. It withers in disobedience, in rebellion against God. Where there should be peace and harmony, there is strife and violence, and they disobey him. They demonstrate they are not able to joyfully obey God who has provided everything for them. We even see this in their... Uh, wanderings in the wilderness. God provides for them manna from heaven. They grumble. God provides for them water out of the rock to quench their thirst. They grumble. The scripture even says that God gave them his spirit to instruct them, and yet they rebelled against him and were disobedient. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and says, I am the true vine, He is telling us he is everything that Israel should have been. He is telling us he is everything you and I should have been. That he is the true vine which produces much fruit and so glorifies our God in heaven. The Father has perfectly loved the Son The Son has perfectly abided in the Father's love by perfectly obeying His commandments to love God and to love others. Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. 
Jesus' demonstration of love for you and me was being lifted up on the cross, suffering an unjust death because he deserved none of it, because he was innocent, he was righteous, and yet he was the substitute for our sins. He was the sacrifice for our sins. And that is a demonstration of his perfect love for you, his disciples. And this resulted in Jesus' joy being filled up to the brim. Did you see the pattern there? The Father loved the Son. The Son abided in the Father's love by perfectly obeying the commandments to love, resulting in the joy of Jesus being filled up to the brim. And he wants you to experience the fullness of this joy too. So where does the fullness of this joy come from? It comes from enjoying the perfect love of Jesus for us, abiding in it, remaining in that love, and then joyfully beginning to obey his commandments for the glory of God the Father. And this, our obedience, is couched in verse 5. You can't miss that. You can't get around that. You can't forget that. It is couched in verse 5. Without me, you can do nothing. It's not your work in obeying the Father's commandments, in loving your brother or sister, your wife or your husband, in loving your enemy, in loving God and obeying his commands. It is not your work. It is the work of the Spirit of God inside of you. This is what he just promised in the rest of John chapter 14, the Holy Spirit who would come and teach you all things and guide you in the truth. It is the work of the Spirit of God. It is in line with the promises of Ezekiel 36, where we read, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and calls you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus Christ did what Israel could never do, and now he has given us his spirit so that we might begin walking in the newness of life for the glory of God the Father. In other words, this is spirit-empowered, faith-fueled, joyful obedience to God for the glory of God. This is what it means to bear fruit for the glory of God. And if you look once again to your performance and you count up all the apples on your fruit tree and you, you try to figure out and examine all that you can about your own obedience, then you have to, to look away once again to look away, away from yourself, away from your own obedience, like, uh, like a child who's learning to walk. I've seen almost all of my nieces and nephews learn to walk. And as long as they keep their eyes focused on their mom or dad, often they'll just be able to keep on going and they'll reach you and everybody is excited and rejoicing. But if they begin to look down at their own feet, if they begin to look to the left or to the right, they stumble and they fall. Look away from your own performance, from your own fruit bearing and look to the true vine who has produced great fruit for the glory of God the Father. Look to him. 
and you will have life. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we want to obey you. We want to bring glory to your name. We want to bear much fruit and so honor you. And we do want our joy to be full in who you are for us. But we know that this is ultimately your work. It is ultimately your work and not ours. And so we do what your word tells us to do. We, we are asking you. We are asking you, Lord. Please produce much fruit in us. For our joy and for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.